0: Welcome, and thank you for joining us for Bygone Tales, episode 24. In this episode, we have three short stories, one by O. Henry, one by Mark Twain, and one by Guy de Maupassant. So, without further ado, let's get to it. Now, O. Henry, to me, is a very interesting individual, so this background will be rather extensive. O. Henry, William Sidney Porter... September 11th, 1862 to June 5th, 1910, was most well known by his pen name, O. Henry. He was an American short story writer. His stories are known for their surprise endings. William Sidney Porter was born on September 11th, 1862 in Greensboro, North Carolina. His parents were Dr. Algernon Sidney Porter, a physician, and Mary Jane Virginia Swain Porter. When William was three, his mother died from tuberculosis, and he and his father moved into the home of his paternal grandmother. As a child, Porter was always reading, everything from classics to dime novels. His favorite works were Lane's translation of 1001 Nights and Burton's Anatomy of Melancholy. Porter graduated from his Aunt Elevina Maria Porter's elementary school in 1876. He then enrolled at the Lindsay Street High School. His aunt continued to tutor him until he was 15. In 1879, he started working in his uncle's drugstore in Greensboro, and on August 30, 1881, at the age of 19, Porter was licensed as a pharmacist. At the drugstore, he also showed his natural artistic talents by sketching the town folk. Porter traveled with Dr. James K. Hall to Texas in March 1882, hoping that a change of air would help alleviate a persistent cough he had developed. He took up residence on the sheep ranch of Richard Hall, James's son, in LaSalle County and helped out as a shepherd, ranch hand, cook, and babysitter. While on the ranch, he learned bits of Spanish and German. He also spent time reading classic literature. Porter's health did improve. He traveled with Richard to Austin, Texas in 1884, where he decided to remain and was welcomed into the home of Richard's friends, Joseph Harrell and his wife. Porter resided with the Harrels for three years. He went to work briefly for the Morley Brothers Drug Company as a pharmacist. Porter then moved on to work for the Harrell Cigar Store, located in the Driscoll Hotel. He began writing as a sideline and wrote many of his early stories in the Harrell House. As a young bachelor, Porter led an active social life in Austin. He was known for his wit, storytelling, and musical talents. He played both the guitar and the mandolin. He sang in the choir at St. David's Episcopal Church and became a member of the Hill City Quartet, a group of young men who sang at gatherings and serenaded young women of the town. Porter met and began courting Ethel Estes, 17 years old and from a wealthy family. Historians believe that Porter met Ethel at the laying of the cornerstone of the Texas state capitol on March 2, 1885. Her mother objected to the match because Ethel was ill, suffering from tuberculosis. On July 1st, 1887, Porter eloped with Ethel, and was married in the parlor of the home of Reverend R. K. Smoot, pastor of the Central Presbyterian Church, where the Estes family attended church. The couple continued to participate in musical and theater groups, and Ethel encouraged her husband to pursue his writing. Ethel gave birth to a son in 1888, who died hours after birth, and then daughter Margaret Worth Porter in September 1889. Porter's friend, Richard Hall, became Texas Land Commissioner and offered Porter a job. Porter started as a draftsman at the Texas General Land Office, GLO, on January 12, 1887, at a salary of $100 a month, drawing maps from surveys and field notes. The salary was enough to support his family, but he continued his contributions to magazines and newspapers. In the GLO building, he began developing characters and plots for such stories as Georgia Ruling, 1900, and Buried Treasure, 1908. The castle-like building he worked in was even woven into some of his tales, such as Bexer Script No. 2692, 1894. His job at the GLO was a political appointment by Hall. Hall ran for governor in the elections of 1890, but lost. Porter resigned on January 21, 1891, the day after the new governor, Jim Hogg, was sworn in. The same year, Porter began working at the First National Bank of Austin as a teller and bookkeeper at the same salary he had made at the GLO. The bank was operated informally, and Porter was apparently careless in keeping his books and may have embezzled funds. In 1894, he was accused by the Bank of Embezzlement and lost his job, but was not indicted at the time. He then worked full-time on his humorous weekly called The Rolling Stone, which he started while working at the bank. The Rolling Stone featured satire on life, people, and politics, and included Porter's short stories and sketches. Although eventually reaching a top circulation of 1,500, The Rolling Stone failed in April, 1895, because the paper never provided an adequate income. However, his writing and drawings had caught the attention of the editor at the Houston Post. Porter and his family moved to Houston in 1895, where he started writing for the Post. His salary was only $25 a month, but it rose steadily as his popularity increased. Porter gathered ideas for his column by loitering in hotel lobbies and observing and talking to people there. This was a technique he used throughout his writing career. While he was in Houston, federal auditors audited the First National Bank of Austin and found the embezzlement shortages that had led to his firing. A federal indictment followed, and he was arrested on charges of embezzlement. Porter's father-in-law posted bail to keep him out of jail. He was due to stand trial on July 7, 1896, but the day before, as he was changing trains to get to the courthouse, an impulse hit him. He fled, first to New Orleans, and then to Honduras, which, with the United States, had no extradition treaty at the time. William lived in Honduras for only six months until January 1897. There he became friends with Al Jennings, a notorious train robber who later wrote a book about their friendship. He holed up at the Trujillo Hotel, where he wrote Cabbages and Kings, in which he coined the term Banana Republic to qualify the country, a phrase subsequently used widely to describe a small, unstable tropical nation in Latin America with a narrowly focused agrarian economy. Porter had sent Ethel and Margaret back to Austin to live with Ethel's parents. Unfortunately, Ethel became too ill to meet Porter in Honduras as he had planned. When he learned that his wife was dying, Porter returned to Austin in February 1897 and surrendered to the court pending trial. Ethel Estes Porter died from tuberculosis, then known as consumption, on July 25, 1897. Porter had little to say in his own defense at the trial and was found guilty on February 17, 1898, of embezzling He was sentenced to five years in prison and imprisoned on March twenty-fifth, 1898 at the Ohio Penitentiary in Columbus, Ohio. Porter was a licensed pharmacist and was able to work in the prison hospital as the night druggist. He was given his own room in the hospital wing, and there is no record that he actually spent time in the cell block of the prison. He had 14 stories published under various pseudonyms while he was in prison, but was becoming best known as O. Henry a pseudonym that first appeared over the story Whistling Dick's Christmas Stocking in the December 1899 issue of McClure's magazine. A friend of his in New Orleans would forward his stories to publishers so that they had no idea that the writer was imprisoned. Porter was released on July 24, 1901 for good behavior after serving three years. He reunited with his daughter, Margaret, now age 11, in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, where Ethel's parents had moved after Porter's conviction. Margaret was never told that her father had been in prison, just that he had been away on business. Porter's most prolific writing period started in 1902 when he moved to New York City to be near his publishers. While there, he wrote 381 short stories. He wrote a story a week for over a year for the New York World Sunday magazine. His wit, characterization, and plot twists were adored by his readers, but often panned by critics. Porter married again in 1907 to childhood sweetheart Sarah Sally Lindsay Coleman, whom he met again after revisiting his native state of North Carolina. Sarah Lindsay Coleman was herself a writer, and wrote a romanticized and fictionalized version of their correspondence and courtship in her novella, Wind of Destiny. Porter was a heavy drinker, and by 1908, his markedly deteriorating health affected his writing. In 1909, Sarah left him... And he died on June 5th, 1910 of cirrhosis of the liver, complications of diabetes, and an enlarged heart. After funeral services in New York City, he was buried in the Riverside Cemetery in Asheville, North Carolina. His daughter, Margaret Worth Porter, had a short writing career from 1913 to 1916. She married cartoonist Oscar Caesar of New York in 1916. They were divorced four years later. She died of tuberculosis in 1927 and is buried next to her father. The Furnished Room by O. Henry Restless, shifting, fugacious as time itself is a certain vast bulk of the population of the red-brick district of the Lower West Side. Homeless, they have a hundred homes. They flit from furnished room to furnished room, transients forever. Transients in abode, transients in heart and mind. They sing home sweet home in ragtime. They carry their lairs at pennets in a bandbox. Their vine is entwined about a picture hat. A rubber plant is their fig tree. Hence the houses of this district, having had a thousand dwellers, should have a thousand tales to tell, mostly dull ones, no doubt. But it would be strange if there could not be found a ghost or two in the wake of all these vagrant guests. One evening after dark, a young man prowled among these crumbling red mansions, ringing their bells. At the twelfth he rested his lean hand baggage upon the steps and wiped the dust from his hat-band and forehead. The bell sounded faint and far away in some remote hollow depths. To the door of this, the twelfth house whose bell he had rung, came a housekeeper who made him think of an unwholesome, surfeited worm that had eaten its nut to a hollow shell and now sought to fill the vacancy with edible lodgers. He asked if there was a room to let. "'Come in,' said the housekeeper. Her voice came from her throat. Her throat seemed lined with fur. "'I have a third floor back, vacant since a week back. Should you wish to look at it?' The young man followed her up the stairs— A faint light from no particular source mitigated the shadows of the halls. They trod noiselessly upon a stair carpet that its own loom would have forsworn. It seemed to have become vegetable, to have disintegrated in that rank, sunless air to a lush lichen or spreading moss that grew in patches on the staircase and was viscid under the foot like organic matter. At each turn of the stairs were vacant niches in the wall. Perhaps plants had once been set within them. If so, they had died in that foul and tainted air. It may be that statues of the saints had stood there, but it was not difficult to conceive that imps and devils had dragged them forth in the darkness and down to the unholy depths of some furnished pit below. "'This is the room,' said the housekeeper from her furry throat. "'It's a nice room. It ain't often vacant. I had some most elegant people in it last summer. No trouble at all, and paid in advance to the minute. The water's at the end of the hall. Sprowls and Mooney kept it three months. they done a vaudeville sketch. Miss Bretta Sprowls, you may have heard of her. Oh, that was just the stage names. Right there over the dresser is where their marriage certificate hung, framed. The gas is here, and you see there is plenty of closet room. It's a room everybody likes. It never stays idle long. Do you have many theatrical people rooming here? asked the young man. They comes and goes. A good proportion of my lodgers is connected with the theaters. Yes, sir, this is the theater district. Actor people never stays long anywhere. I get my share, yes, they comes and they goes. He engaged the room, paying for a week in advance. He was tired, he said, and would take possession at once. He counted out the money. The room had been made ready, she said, even to towels and water. As the housekeeper moved away, he put, for the thousandth time, the question that he carried at the end of his tongue. A young girl, Miss Vashner, Miss Eloise Vashner, do you remember such a one among your lodgers? She would be singing on the stage, most likely. A fair girl, of medium height and slender, with reddish, gold hair, and a dark mole near her left eyebrow. No, I don't remember the name. Them stage people has names they change as often as their rooms. They comes and they goes. No, I don't call that one to mind. No. Always no. Five months of ceaseless interrogation and the inevitable negative. So much time spent by day in questioning managers, agents, schools, and choruses. By night, among the audiences of theaters from all-star casts down to music halls so low that he dreaded to find what he most hoped for. He who had loved her best had tried to find her. He was sure that since her disappearance from home, this great, water-girt city held her somewhere. But it was like a monstrous quicksand, shifting its particles constantly, with no foundation, its upper granules of today buried tomorrow in ooze and slime. The furnished room received its latest guest with a first glow of pseudo-hospitality, a hectic, haggard, perfunctory welcome like the specious slime of a demi-rep. The sophistical comfort came in reflected gleams from the decayed furniture, the ragged brocade upholstery of a couch and two chairs, a foot-deep, cheap pier-glass between the two windows, from one or two gilt picture frames and a brass bedstand in a corner. The guest reclined, inert, upon a chair, while the room, confused in speech as though it were an apartment in Babel, tried to discourse to him of its diverse tenancy. A polychromatic rug, like some brilliant-flowered rectangular tropical islet lay surrounded by a billowy sea of soiled matting. Upon the gay papered wall were those pictures that pursue the homeless one from house to house. The Huguenot lovers, the first quarrel, the wedding breakfast, psyche at the fountain. The mantle's chastely severe outline was ingloriously veiled behind some pert drapery, drawn rakishly askew like the sashes of the Amazonian ballet. Upon it was some desolate flotsam cast aside by the rooms marooned when a lucky sail had borne them to a fresh port. A trifling vase or two, pictures of actresses, a medicine bottle, some stray cards out of a deck. One by one, as the characters of a cryptograph become explicit, the little signs left by the furnished room's procession of guests developed a significance. The threadbare space, in the rug in front of the dresser, told that lovely woman had marched in a throng. Tiny fingerprints on the wall spoke of little prisoners trying to feel their way to sun and air. A splattered stain, raying like a shadow of a bursting bomb, witnessed where a hurled glass, or bottle, had splintered with its contents against the wall. Across the pier glass had been scrawled with a diamond in staggering letters the name Marie. It seemed that a succession of dwellers in the furnished room had turned in fury, perhaps tempered beyond forbearance by its garish coldness, and wrecked upon it their passions. The furniture was chipped and bruised. The couch, distorted by bursting springs, seemed a horrible monster that had been slain during the stress of some gruesome convulsion. Some more potent upheaval had cloven a great slice from the marble mantle. Each plank in the floor owned its particular cant and shriek as from a separate and individual agony. It seemed incredible that all this malice and injury had been wrought upon the room by those who had called it for a time their home, and yet it may have been the cheated home instinct surviving blindly, the resentful rage at false household gods that had kindled their wrath. A hut that is our own we can sweep and adorn and cherish. The young tenant in the chair allowed these thoughts to file, soft-shod through his mind, while there drifted into the room furnished sounds and furnished scents. He heard in one room a tittering and incontinent, slack laughter. In others, the monologue of a scold, the rattling of dice, a lullaby, and one crying dully. Above him, a banjo tinkled with spirit. Doors banged somewhere. The elevated trains roared intermittently. A cat yelled miserably upon a back fence. And he breathed the breath of the house, a dank savor rather than a smell, a cold, musty effluvium as from underground vaults mingled with the reeking exhalations of linoleum and mildewed and rotten woodwork. Then, suddenly as he rested there, The room was filled with the strong, sweet odor of Mignonette. It came upon a single buffet of wind, with such sureness and fragrance and emphasis that it almost seemed a living visitant. The man cried aloud, What, dear? As if he had been called, and sprang up and faced about. The rich odor clung to him and wrapped him around. He reached out his arms for it, all his senses for the time confused and commingled. How could one be peremptorily called by an odor? Surely it must have been a sound, but it was not the sound that had touched, that had caressed him. She has been in this room, he cried, and he sprang to wrest it from a token, for he knew he would recognize the smallest thing that had belonged to her, or that she had touched. This enveloping scent of mignonette, the odor that she had loved and made her own, whence came it? The room had been but carelessly set in order. Scattered upon the flimsy dresser scarf were a half-dozen hairpins, those discreet, indistinguishable friends of womankind, feminine of gender, infinite of mood, and uncommunicative of tense. These he ignored, conscious of their triumphant lack of identity. Ransacking the drawers of the dresser, he came upon a discarded, tiny, ragged handkerchief. He pressed it to his face. It was racy and insolent with heliotrope. He hurled it to the floor. In another drawer he found odd buttons, a theater program, a pawnbroker's card, two lost marshmallows, a book on the divination of dreams. And the last was a woman's black satin hair bow, which halted him, poised between ice and fire. But the black satin hair bow also is femininity's demure, impersonal, common ornament, and tells no tales. And then he traversed the room like a hound on the scent, skimming the walls, considering the corners of the bulging mattress on his hands and knees, rummaging mantel and tables, the curtains and hangings, the drunken cabinet in the corner for a visible sign unable to perceive that she was there beside, around, against, within, above him, clinging to him, wooing him, calling him so poignantly through the finer senses that even his grosser ones became cognizant of the call. Once again he answered loudly, Yes, dear, and turned, wild-eyed, to gaze on vacancy, for he could not yet discern form and color, and love and outstretched arms in the odor of Mignonette. O oh God, whence that odor? And since when have odors had a voice to call? Thus he groped. He burrowed in crevices and corners, and found corks and cigarettes. These he passed in passive contempt. But once he found in a fold of the matting a half-smoked cigar, and this he ground beneath his heel with a green and trenchant oath. He sifted the room from end to end. He found, dreary and ignoble, small records of many a peripatetic tenant. But of her whom he sought, and who may have lodged here, and whose spirit seemed to hover there, he found no trace. And then he thought of the housekeeper. He ran from the haunted room downstairs to a door that showed a crack of light. She came out to his knock. He smothered his excitement as best he could. "'Will you tell me, madam,' he besought her, "'who occupied the room I have before I came?' "'Yes, sir, I can tell you again. "'Twas Sprowls and Mooney, as I said. "'Miss Bretta Sprouls it was in the theatres. "'But Miss Mooney she was. "'My house is well known for respectability.' "'The marriage certificate hung, framed on a nail over. "'What kind of lady was Miss Sprawls? in look, I mean. Why, black-haired, sir, short and stout, with a comical face, they left a week ago Tuesday. And before they occupied it? Why, there was a single gentleman connected with the draying business. He left owing me a week. Before him was Mrs. Crowder and her two children that stayed four months, and back of them was old Mr. Doyle, whose sons paid for him. He kept the room six months that goes back a year, sir, and further I do not remember. He thanked her and crept back to his room. The room was dead. The essence that had vivified it was gone. The perfume of mignonette had departed. In its place was the old, stale odor of moldy house furniture, of atmosphere in storage. The ebbing of his hope drained his faith. He sat staring at the yellow, singing gaslight. Soon he walked to the bed, and began to tear the sheets into strips. With the blade of his knife, he drove them tightly into every crevice around windows and door. When all was snug and taut, he turned out the light, turned the gas full on again, and laid himself gratefully upon the bed. It was Miss McCool's night to go with the can for beer. So she fetched it, and sat with Miss Purdy in one of those subterranean retreats where housekeepers foregather, and the worm dieth seldom. "'I rented out my third floor back this evening,' said Miss Purdy, across a fine circle of foam. "'A young man took it. He went up to bed two hours ago.' "'Now did ye, Miss Purdy, ma'am,' said Miss McCool with intense admiration." You do be a wonder for rentin' rooms of that kind. And did ye tell him, then? She concluded in a husky whisper laden with mystery. Rooms, said Miss Purdy in her furriest tones, are furnished for to rent. I did not tell him, Miss McCool. Tis right ye are, ma'am. Tis by renting rooms we keep alive. Ye have a rail sense for business, ma'am. There will be many people will reject the rentin' of a room if they be told a suicide has been there a-dyin' in the bed of it. "'As you say, we has our living to be making,' remarked Miss Purdy. "'Yes, ma'am, tis true. "'Tis just one wake ago this day I help ye lay out the third floor back "'a pretty slip of a Colleen she was to be killin' herself wid de gas. "'With sweet little face she had, Miss Purdy, ma'am. "'She'd a been called handsome, as you say,' said Miss Purdy, assenting but critical. "'But for that mole she had a growin' by her left eyebrow. "'Do fill up your glass again, Miss McCool.'" <music> That story was first published in The New York World, August 14th, 1904. Later, republished in the 1906 anthology, The Four Million. It is probably one of his most well-known stories, and often appears in any best-of anthology. Samuel Langhorne Clemens, November 30, 1835, to April 21, 1910, better known by his pen name Mark Twain, was an American writer, humorist, entrepreneur, publisher, and lecturer. Among his novels are The Adventures of Tom Sawyer, 1875, and its sequel, The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, 1885, the later often called the Great American Novel. Twain was raised in Hannibal, Missouri, which later provided the setting for Tom Sawyer and Huckleberry Finn. He served an apprenticeship with a printer and then worked as a typesetter, contributing articles to the newspaper of his older brother, Orion Clemens. He later became a riverboat pilot on the Mississippi River before heading west to join Orion in Nevada. He referred humorously to his lack of success at mining, turning to journalism in the Virginia City Territorial Enterprise. His humorous story, The Celebrated Jumping Frog of Calaveras County, was published in 1865 based on a story that he heard at the Angels Hotel in Angels Camp, California, where he spent some time as a miner. The short story brought international attention and was even translated into French. His wit and satire, in prose and in speech, earned praise from critics and peers, and he was a friend to presidents, artists, industrialists, and European royalty. Twain earned a great deal of money from his writings and lectures, but he invested in ventures that lost most of it. Notably, the Page Compositor, a mechanical typesetter that failed because of its complexity and imprecision. He filed for bankruptcy in the wake of these financial setbacks, but he eventually overcame his financial troubles with the help of Henry Huddleston Rogers. He chose to pay all of his pre-bankruptcy creditors in full, even though he had no legal responsibility to do so. Twain was born shortly after the appearance of Halley's Comet, and he predicted that he would go out with it as well. He died the day after the comet returned. He was lauded as the greatest humorist this country has produced, and William Faulkner called him the father of American literature. A Curious Dream Containing a Moral by Mark Twain. Night before last I had a singular dream. I seemed to be sitting on a doorstep, in no particular city perhaps, ruminating, and the time of night appeared to be about twelve or one o'clock. The weather was balmy and delicious. There was no human sound in the air, not even a footstep. There was no sound of any kind to emphasize the dead stillness except the occasional hollow barking of a dog in the distance, and the fainter answer of a further dog. Presently, up the street, I heard a bony clack-clacking, and guessed it was the castanets of a serenading party. In a minute more, a tall skeleton, hooded and half-clad in a tattered and moldy shroud, whose shreds were flapping about the ribby lattice-work of its person, swung by me with a stately stride, and disappeared in the grey gloom of the starlight. It had a broken and worm-eaten coffin on its shoulder, and a bundle of something in its hand. I knew what the clack clacking was then. It was this party's joints working together, and his elbows knocking against his sides as he walked. I may say I was surprised, Before I could collect my thoughts and enter upon any speculations as to what this apparition might portend, I heard another one coming, for I recognized his clack-clack. He had two-thirds of a coffin on his shoulder, and some foot and headboards under his arm. I mightily wanted to peer under his hood and speak to him, but when he turned and smiled upon me with his cavernous sockets and his projecting grin as he went by, I thought I would not detain him. He was hardly gone when I heard the clacking again, and another one issued from the shadowy half-light. This one was bending under a heavy gravestone, and dragging a shabby coffin after him by a string. When he got to me, he gave me a steady look for a moment or two, and then, rounded to and backed up to me, saying, Ease this down for a fellow, will you? I eased the gravestone down till it rested on the ground, and, in doing so, noticed that it bore the name of John Baxter Comptonhurst, with May 1839 as the date of his death. Deceased sat wearily down beside me, and wiped his os with his major maxillary, chiefly from former habit I judged, for I could not see that he brought away any perspiration. "'It is too bad, too bad,' said he, drawing the remnant of the shroud about him and leaning his jaw pensively upon his hand. Then he put his left foot up on his knee and fell to scratching his ankle bone absently with a rusty nail, which he got out of his coffin. "'What is too bad, friend?' "'Oh, everything. Everything. I almost wish I never had died.' "'You surprise me. Why do you say this? Has anything gone wrong?' What is the matter?" "'Matter? Look at this shroud-rag. Look at this gravestone, all battered up. Look at that disgraceful old coffin, all a man's property going to ruin and destruction before his eyes, and ask him if anything is wrong. Fire and brimstone!' "'Calm yourself, calm yourself,' I said. It is too bad. It is certainly too bad. But then I am not supposed that you would much mind such matters, situated as you are. "'Well, my dear sir, I do mind them. My pride is hurt, and my comfort is impaired, destroyed, I might say. I will state my case. I will put it to you in such a way that you can comprehend it, if you will let me,' said the poor skeleton, tilting the hood of his shroud back, as if it were clearing for action and thus unconsciously giving himself a jaunty and festive air very much at variance with the grave character of his position in life, so to speak, and in prominent contrast with his distressful mood. Proceed, said I. I reside in the shameful old graveyard a block or two above you here, in this street, there now. I just expected that cartilage would let go third rib from the bottom. Friend, hitch the end of it to my spine with a string, if you have got such a thing about you, though a bit of silver wire is a deal pleasanter and more durable and becoming, if one keeps it polished, to think of shredding out and going to pieces in this way, just on account of the indifference and neglect of one's posterity. And the poor ghost grated his teeth in a way that gave me a wrench and a shiver for the effect is mightily increased by the absence of muffling flesh and cuticle. I reside in that old graveyard, and have for these thirty years, and I tell you things are changed since I first laid this old tired frame there, and turned over and stretched out for a long sleep, with a delicious sense upon me of being done with bother and grief and anxiety and doubt and fear forever and ever and listening with comfortable and increasing satisfaction to the sexton's work from the startling clatter of his first spadeful on my coffin till it dulled away to a faint padding that shaped the roof of my new home delicious my i wish you could try it tonight and out of my reverie deceased fetched me a rattling slap with a bony hand Yes, sir, thirty years ago, I laid me down there and was happy. For it was out in the country then, out in the breezy, flowery, grand old woods, and the lazy winds gossiped with the leaves, and the squirrels capered over us and round us, and the creeping things visited us, and the birds filled the tranquil solitude with music. Ah, it was worth ten years of a man's life to be dead then. Everything was pleasant. I was in a good neighborhood, for all the dead people that lived near me belonged to the best families in the city. Our posterity appeared to think the world of us. They kept our graves in the very best condition. The fences were always in faultless repair. Headboards were kept painted or whitewashed, and were replaced with new ones as soon as they began to look rusty or decayed. Monuments were kept upright, railings intact and bright, the rose bushes and shrubbery trimmed, trained, and free from blemish, the walks clean and smooth and graveled. But that day has gone by. Our descendants have forgotten us. My grandson lives in a stately house built with the money made by these old hands of mine, and I sleep in a neglected grave with invading vermin that gnaw my shroud and build them nests withal. I and friends that lie with me, founded and secured the posterity of this fine city, and the stately bantling of our loves leaves us to rot in a dilapidated cemetery which neighbors curse and strangers scoff at. See the difference between the old times and this? For instance, Our graves are all caved in now, our headboards have rotted away and tumbled down, our railings reel this way and that, with one foot in the air after a fashion of unseemly levity, our monuments lean wearily, and our gravestones bow their heads, discouraged. There be no adornments any more, no roses, no shrubs, nor graveled walks, nor anything that is a comfort to the eye. And even the paintless old board fence that did make a show of holding us, sacred from companionship with beasts, and the defilement of heedless feet, has tottered till it overhangs the street, and only advertises the presence of our dismal resting place, and invites yet more derision to it. And now we cannot hide our poverty and tatters in the friendly woods, for the city has stretched its withering arms abroad and taken us in, and all that remains of the cheer of our old home is a cluster of lugubrious forest trees that stand, bored and weary of a city's life, with their feet in our coffins, looking into the hazy distance and wishing they were there. I tell you, it is disgraceful. You begin to comprehend, you begin to see how it is, while our descendants are living sumptuously on our money. Right around us, in this city, we have to fight hard to keep skull and bones together. Bless you, there isn't a grave in our cemetery that doesn't leak. Not one! Every time it rains in the night, we have to climb out and roost in the trees, and sometimes we are awakened suddenly by the chilly water trickling down the back of our necks. Then, I tell you, there is a general heaving up of old graves, and kicking over of old monuments, and scampering of old skeletons for the trees. Bless me, if you had gone along there some such nights after twelve, you might have seen as many as fifteen of us roosting on one limb, with our joints rattling drearily, and the wind wheezing through our ribs." Many a time we have perched there for three or four dreary hours, and then come down, stiff and chilled through and drowsy, and borrowed each other's skulls to bail out our graves with. If you will glance up at my mouth now as I tilt my head back, you can see that my headpiece is half full of old, dry sediment. How top-heavy and stupid it makes me sometimes. Yes, sir, many a time, if you had happened to come along just before the dawn, you'd have caught us bailing out the graves and hanging our shrouds on the fence to dry. Why, I had an elegant shroud stolen from there one morning. Think a party by the name of Smith took it that resides in a plebeian graveyard over yonder. I think so, because the first time I ever saw him, he hadn't anything on but a check shirt, And the last time I saw him, which was at a social gathering in the new cemetery, he was the best dressed corpse in the company. And it is a significant fact that he left when he saw me, and presently an old woman from here missed her coffin. She generally took it with her when she went anywhere, because she was liable to take cold and bring on the spasmodic rheumatism that originally killed her, if she exposed herself to the night air much. She was named Hotchkiss. Anna Matilda Hotchkiss. You might know her. She had two upper front teeth, is tall but a good deal inclined to stoop, one rib on the left side gone. She has one shred of rusty hair hanging from the left side of her head, and one little tuft just above and a little forward of her right ear. Has her underjaw wired on one side where it had worked loose, "'small bone of left forearm gone, lost in a fight, "'has a kind of swagger in her gait "'and a gallus way of going with her arms akimbo "'and her nostrils in the air. "'Has been pretty free and easy "'and is all damaged and battered up "'till she looks like a Queensware crate in ruins. "'Maybe you have met her?' "'God forbid!' I involuntarily ejaculated." for somehow I was not looking for that form of question, and it caught me a little off my guard. But I hastened to make amends for my rudeness, and say, I simply meant I had not had the honour, for I would not deliberately speak discourteously of a friend of yours. You were saying that you were robbed? And it is a shame, too, but it appears by what is left of the shroud you have on, that it was a costly one in its day. How did... A most ghastly expression began to develop among the decayed features and shriveled integuments of my guest's face, and I was beginning to grow uneasy and distressed, when he told me he was only working up a deep, sly smile with a wink in it, to suggest that about the time he acquired his present garment, a ghost in a neighboring cemetery missed one. This reassured me, but I begged him to confine himself to speech thenceforth because his facial expression was uncertain. Even with the most elaborate care, it was liable to misfire. Smiling should especially be avoided. What he might honestly consider a shining success was likely to strike me in a very different light. I said I liked to see a skeleton cheerful, even decorously playful, but I did not think smiling was a skeleton's best hold. "'Yes, friend,' said the poor skeleton." The facts are just as I have given them to you. Two of these old graveyards, the one that I resided in, and one further along, have been deliberately neglected by our descendants of today, until there is no occupying them any longer, aside from the osteological discomfort of it—and that is no light matter in this rainy weather—the present state of things is so ruinous to property. We have got to move or be content to see our effects washed away and utterly destroyed. Now, you will hardly believe it, but it is true, nevertheless, that there isn't a single coffin in good repair among all my acquaintances. Now, that is an absolute fact. I do not refer to low people who come in a pine box mounted on an express wagon, but I am talking about your high-toned, silver-mounted burial case, your monumental sort, that travel under black plumes at the head of a procession, and have choice of cemetery lots. I mean folks like Jarvis's, and the Bledsoe's, and Burling's, and such. They are all about ruined. The most substantial people on our set, they were, and now look at them, utterly used up and poverty-stricken. One of the Bledsoe's actually traded his monument to a late barkeeper for some fresh shavings to put under his head. I tell you, it speaks volumes, for there is nothing a corpse takes so much pride in as his monument. He loves to read the inscription. He comes after a while to believe what it says himself, and then you may see him sitting on the fence night after night enjoying it. Epitaphs are cheap and they do a poor chap a world of good after he is dead, especially if he had hard luck when he was alive. I wish they were used more. Now, I don't complain, but confidently, I do think it was a little shabby of my descendants to give me nothing but this old slab of a gravestone, and all the more that there isn't a compliment on it. It used to have gone to his just reward on it, and I was proud when I first saw it, but by and by I noticed that whenever an old friend of mine came along, he would hook his chin on the railing and pull a long face, and read along down till he came to that, and then he would chuckle to himself and walk off, looking satisfied and comfortable. So I scratched it off to get rid of those fools. But a dead man always takes a deal of pride in his monument. Yonder goes half a dozen of the Jarvises now, with the family monument along. And Smithers and some hired specters went by with his a while ago. Hello, Higgins. Goodbye, old friend. That's Meredith Higgins. Died in 44. Belongs to our set in the cemetery. Fine, old family. Great-grandmother was an Injun. I'm on the most familiar terms with her. He didn't hear me was the reason he didn't answer. And I am sorry, too, because I would have liked to introduce you. You would admire him. He is the most disjointed, sway-backed, and generally distorted old skeleton you ever saw. But he is full of fun. When he laughs, it sounds like rasping two stones together, and he always starts it off with a cheery screech like the raking of a nail across a windowpane. "'Hey, Jones!' That is old Columbus Jones. Shroud cost $400. Entire trousseau, including monument, 2700 This was in the spring of 26. It was enormous style for those days. Dead people came all the way from the Alleghenies to see his things. The party that occupied the grave next to mine remembers it well. Now, do you see that individual going along with a piece of headboard under his arm, one leg bone below his knee gone, and not a thing in the world on? That is Barstow Dalhos, and next to Columbus Jones, he was the most scrumptuously outfitted person that ever entered our cemetery. We are all leaving. We cannot tolerate the treatment we are receiving at the hands of our descendants they open new cemeteries, but they leave us to our ignominy. They mend the streets, but they never mend anything that is about us or belongs to us. Look at that coffin of mine. Yet, I tell you, in its day it was a piece of furniture that would have attracted attention in any drawing room in this city. You may have it if you want it. I can't afford to repair it. Put a new bottom in her, and part of a new top, and a bit of fresh lining along the left side, and you'll find her about as comfortable as any receptacle of her species you ever tried. No, thanks. No, don't mention it. You have been civil to me, and I would give you all the property I have got before I would seem ungrateful. Now, this winding sheet is a kind of sweet thing in its way, if you would like it. No? Well, just as you say... But I wished to be fair and liberal. There's nothing mean about me. Goodbye, friend. I must be going. I may have a good way to go tonight. Don't know. I only know one thing for certain, and that is that I am on the immigrant trail now, and I'll never sleep in that crazy old cemetery again. I will travel till I find respectable quarters, if I have to hoof it to New Jersey. All the boys are going. It was decided in public conclave last night to emigrate, and by the time the sun rises, there won't be a bone left in our old habitations. Such cemeteries may suit my surviving friends, but they do not suit the remains that have the honor to make these remarks. My opinion is the general opinion. If you doubt it, go and see how the departing ghosts upset things before they started. They were most riotous in their demonstrations of distaste. Hello, here are some of the Bledsoe's, and if you will give me a lift with this tombstone, I guess I will join company and jog along with them. Mighty respectable old family, the Bledsoe's, and used to always come out in six horse hearses and all that sort of thing fifty years ago when I walked these streets in daylight. Goodbye, friend. And, with his gravestone on his shoulder, he joined the grisly procession, dragging his damaged coffin after him, for, notwithstanding, he pressed it upon me so earnestly, I utterly refused his hospitality. I suppose that for as much as two hours these sad outcasts went clacking by, laden with their dismal effects, and all that time I sat pitying them. One or two of the youngest and least dilapidated among them inquired about midnight trains on the railways, but the rest seemed unacquainted with that mode of travel, and merely asked about common public roads to various towns and cities, some of which are not even on the map now, and vanished from it and from the earth as much as thirty years ago and some few of them never had existed anywhere but on maps, and private ones in real estate agencies at that. And they asked about the condition of the cemeteries in these towns and cities, and about the reputation the citizens bore as to reverence for the dead. This whole matter interested me deeply, and likewise compelled my sympathy for these homeless ones. And, it all seeming real, and I, not knowing it was a dream, I mentioned to one shrouded wanderer an idea that had entered my head to publish an account of this curious and very sorrowful exodus, but said also that I could not describe it truthfully, and just as it occurred, without seeming to trifle with a grave subject and exhibit an irreverence for the dead that would shock and distress their surviving friends. But this bland and stately remnant of a former citizen leaned him far over my gate and whispered in my ear and said, Do not let that disturb you. The community that can stand such graveyards as those we are immigrating from can stand anything a body can say about the neglected and forsaken dead that lie in them. At that very moment, a cock crowed, and the weird procession vanished and left, not a shred or a bone behind. I awoke and found myself lying with my head out of the bed and sagging downward considerably, a position favorable to dreaming dreams with morals in them, maybe, but not poetry. Note. The reader is assured that if the cemeteries in his town are kept in good order— This dream is not leveled at his town at all, but is leveled particularly and venomously at the next town. This story was first published before 1907, and was later adapted into A Curious Dream, a 1907 short drama film based on the short story. Twain himself provided the following testimonial. Gentlemen, I authorize the Vitagraph Company of America to make a moving picture from My Curious Dream. I have their picture of John Barter examining his gravestone and find it frightfully and deliciously humorous. Guy de Montpassant Henri-René Albert Guy de Montpassant, August 5, 1850 to July 6, 1893, was a French writer remembered as a master of the short story form and as a representative of the naturalist school of writers, who depicted human lives and destinies and social forces in disillusioned and often pessimistic terms. Maupassant was a protégé of Flaubert, and his stories are characterized by economy of style and efficient, effortless outcomes. Many are set during the Franco-Prussian War of the 1870s, describing the futility of war and the innocent civilians who, caught up in events beyond their control, are permanently changed by their experiences. He wrote some 300 short stories, six novels, three travel books, and one volume of verse. His first published story, Ball of Fat, 1880, is often considered his masterpiece. The Hand by Guy de Montpassant All were crowding around Monsieur Bermintier, the judge, who was giving his opinion about the Saint Cloud mystery. For a month, this inexplicable crime had been the talk of Paris. Nobody could make head or tail of it. Monsieur Bermentier, standing with his back to the fireplace, was talking, citing the evidence, discussing the various theories, but arriving at no conclusion. Some women had risen, in order to get nearer to him, and were standing with their eyes fastened on the clean-shaven face of the judge, who was saying such weighty things. They were shaking and trembling, moved by fear and curiosity, and by the eager and insubstantial desire for the horrible, which haunts the soul of every woman. One of them, paler than the others, said during a pause, "'It's terrible. It verges on the supernatural. The truth will never be known.' The judge turned to her. "'True, madam. It is likely that the actual facts will never be discovered.' As for the words supernatural, which you have just used, it has nothing to do with the matter. We are in the presence of a very cleverly conceived and executed crime, so well enshrouded in mystery that we cannot disentangle it from the involved circumstances which surround it. But once I had to take charge of an affair in which the uncanny seemed to play a part. In fact, the case became so confused that it had to be given up. Several women exclaimed at once, "'Oh, do tell us about it!' Monsieur Bermentier smiled in a dignified manner, as a judge should, and went on. "'Do not think, however, that I, for one minute, ascribed anything in the case to supernatural influences. I believe only in normal causes. But if, instead of giving the word supernatural to express what we do not understand, We were simply to make use of the word inexplicable, it would be much better. At any rate, in the affair of which I am about to tell you, it is especially the surrounding preliminary circumstances which impressed me. Here are the facts. I was at that time a judge at Iaco, a little white city on the edge of a bay which is surrounded by high mountains the majority of the cases which came up before me concerned vendettas. There were some that are superb, dramatic, ferocious, heroic. We can find there the most beautiful causes for revenge, of which one could dream. enmities hundreds of years old, quieted for a time but never extinguished. Abominable stratagems, murders becoming massacres, and almost deeds of glory. For two years, I heard of nothing but the price of blood, of this terrible Corsican prejudice which compels revenge for insults meted out to the offending person and all his descendants and relatives. I had seen old men, children, cousins murdered. My head was full of these stories. One day, I learned that an Englishman had just hired a little villa at the end of the bay for several years. He had brought with him a french servant whom he had engaged on the way at marseilles soon this particular person living alone only going out to hunt and fish aroused a widespread interest he never spoke to anyone never went to the town and every morning he would practice for an hour or so with his revolver and rifle legends were built up around him It was said that he was some high personage fleeing from his fatherland for political reasons. Then, it was affirmed that he was in hiding after having committed some abominable crime, some particularly horrible circumstances that were mentioned. In my judicial position, I thought it necessary to get some information about this man, but it was impossible to learn anything. He called himself Sir John Rowell. I, therefore, had to be satisfied with watching him as closely as I could, but I could see nothing suspicious about his actions. However, as rumors about him were growing and becoming more widespread, I decided to try to see the stranger myself, and I began to hunt regularly in the neighborhood of his grounds. For a long time, I watched without finding an opportunity, "'At last it came to me in the shape of a partridge "'which I shot and killed right in front of the Englishman. "'My dog fetched it for me, but, taking the bird, "'I went at once to Sir John Rowell "'and, begging his pardon, asked him to accept it. "'He was a big man, with red hair and beard, "'very tall, very broad, "'a kind of calm and polite Hercules. "'He had nothing of the so-called British stiffness.' and in a broad English accent he thanked me warmly for my attention. At the end of a month, we had five or six conversations. One night, at last, as I was passing before his door, I saw him in the garden, seated astride a chair, smoking his pipe. I bowed, and he invited me to come in and have a glass of beer. I needed no urging. He received me with the most punctilious English courtesy sang the praises of France and of Corsica, and declared that he was quite in love with this country. Then, with great caution and under the guise of a vivid interest, I asked him a few questions about his life and his plans. He answered without embarrassment, telling me that he had traveled a great deal in Africa, in the Indies, in America. He added, laughing, "'I have had many adventures,' Then I turned the conversation on hunting, and he gave me the most curious details on hunting the hippopotamus, the tiger, the elephant, and even the gorilla. I said, Are all those animals dangerous? He smiled. Oh no, man is the worst. And he laughed a good broad laugh, the wholesome laugh of a contented Englishman. I have also frequently been man-hunting. Then he began to talk about weapons, and he invited me to come in and see different makes of guns. His parlor was draped in black. Black silk embroidered in gold. Big yellow flowers as brilliant as fire were worked on the dark material. He said, it is a Japanese material. But in the middle of the widest panel, a strange thing attracted my attention. A black object stood out against a square of red velvet. I went up to it. It was a hand, a human hand, not the clean white hand of a skeleton, but a dried black hand with yellow nails, the muscles exposed, and traces of old blood on the bones, which were cut off as clean as though it had been chopped off with an axe near the middle of the forearm. Around the wrist, an enormous iron chain, riveted and soldered to this unclean member, fastened it to the wall by a ring strong enough to hold an elephant in leash. I asked, What is that? The Englishman answered quietly, That is my best enemy. It comes from America, too. The bones were severed by a sword, and the skin cut off with a sharp stone, and dried in the sun for a week. I touched these human remains, which must have belonged to a giant. The uncommonly long fingers were attached by enormous tendons, which still had pieces of skin hanging to them in places. This hand was terrible to see. It made one think of some savage vengeance. I said, this man must have been very strong. The Englishman answered quietly, yes, but I was stronger than he. I put on this chain to hold him. I thought that he was joking, I said. This chain is useless now, the hand won't run away. Sir John Roswell answered seriously, it always wants to go away, this chain is needed. I glanced at him quickly, questioning his face, and I asked myself, is he an insane man or a practical joker? But his face remained inscrutable calm and friendly. I turned to other subjects, and admired his rifles. However, I noticed that he kept three loaded revolvers in the room, as though constantly in fear of some attack. I paid him several calls. Then I did not go any more. People had become used to his presence, and everybody had lost interest in him. A whole year rolled by, One morning, toward the end of November, my servant awoke me and announced that Sir John Rowell had been murdered during the night. Half an hour later, I entered the Englishman's house, together with the police commissioner and the captain of the gendarme. The servant, bewildered and in despair, was crying before the door. At first, I suspected this man, but he was innocent. The guilty party could never be found. On entering Sir John's parlor, I noticed the body stretched out on its back in the middle of the room. His vest was torn, the sleeve of his jacket had been pulled off. Everything pointed to a violent struggle. The Englishman had been strangled. His face was black, swollen and frightful, and seemed to express a terrible fear. He held something between his teeth, and his neck pierced by five or six holes, which looked as though they had been made by some iron instrument, was covered with blood. A physician joined us. He examined the finger marks on the neck for a long time and then made this strange announcement. It looks as though he had been strangled by a skeleton. A cold chill seemed to run down my back and I looked over to where I had formerly seen the terrible hand. It was no longer there. The chain was hanging down, broken. I bent over the dead man, and in his contracted mouth I found one of the fingers of this vanished hand, cut, or rather sawed off by the teeth down to the second knuckle. Then the investigation began. Nothing could be discovered. No door, window, or piece of furniture had been forced. The two watchdogs had not been aroused from their sleep. Here, in a few words, is the testimony of the servant. For a month his master had seemed excited. He had received many letters which he would immediately burn. Often, in a fit of passion which approached madness, he had taken a switch and struck wildly at this dried hand riveted to the wall, and which had disappeared, no one knows how, at the the very hour of the crime. He would go to bed very late and carefully lock himself in. He always kept weapons within reach. Often, at night, he would talk loudly as though he were quarreling with someone. That night, somehow, he had made no noise, and it was only on going to open the windows that the servant had found Sir John murdered. He suspected no one. I communicated what I knew of the dead man to the judges and the public officials. Throughout the whole island, a minute investigation was carried on. Nothing could be found out. One night, about three months after the crime, I had a terrible nightmare. I seemed to see the horrible hand running over my curtains and walls like an immense scorpion or spider. Three times I awoke. Three times I went to sleep again. Three times I saw the hideous object galloping around my room and moving its fingers like legs. The following day, the hand was brought me, found in the cemetery on the grave of Sir John Raoul, who had been buried there because we had been unable to find his family. The first finger was missing. Ladies, there is my story. I know nothing more. The women... "'deeply stirred, were pale and trembling. "'One of them exclaimed, "'But that is neither a climax nor an explanation. "'We will be unable to sleep "'unless you give us your opinion of what had occurred.' "'The judge smiled severely. "'Oh, ladies, I shall certainly spoil your terrible dreams. "'I simply believe that the legitimate owner of the hand "'was not dead, "'that he came to get it with his remaining one. "'But I don't know how.' It was a kind of vendetta, one of the women murmured. No, it can't be that. And the judge, still smiling, said, Didn't I tell you that my explanation would not satisfy you? This story was first published in the 1890s. Well, I sure hope you have enjoyed this episode. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to reach out to us via our email at bygonetails at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook at Bygone Tales Podcast. We also have a website located at mccartneylane.com. Just click on the link for podcasts and click on the link for Bygone Tales. Every episode has its own page, so feel free to swing by and leave a comment. If you're enjoying the show, I please ask that you consider leaving a review or a rating at iTunes, Google Play Music, or Stitcher. As always, you can find our podcast on... You guessed it! iTunes, Google Play Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And... Until next time. Hey, do you like books? Do you know someone who likes books? I'm going to guess if you're listening to this podcast, the answer to one or both of those questions is yes. Sometimes it can be hard to find those unique gifts. Well, I have a solution for you. I want to present to you Shelf Life Books and Games. They can be found at Shelf Life Rare. It's an eBay store. They have a wonderful selection of signed and limited edition sci-fi and fantasy books, as well as some first editions. Their stock changes on a fairly regular basis, so it's a good idea to keep checking back from time to time, and you never know what kind of little hidden gem you may find floating around there. So, if you're looking for a rare or unique gift, go on over to Shelf Life Rare at eBay, And check out their selection. You never know what you may find. You can find the link to their store in our show notes.